As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Tribune Audio Network. If you have a complaint or if you want Jenna to shut down a party. Yeah, no kidding. I'm so popular. <laughs> party Patrol Jenna is Sachs, here. Official buzz kill. <laughs> From the Fox 6 studios, this is Open Record. We are investigative reporters breaking down the big stories, what it took to get them, taking you behind the scenes. It's the stuff we couldn't tell you on TV. On today's episode, lifting the hood on the state of school bus safety. The system is supposed to keep thousands of children safe, but we found flaws. And wild parties fueled by booze, drugs, and even prostitution. The disruption in a Milwaukee neighborhood and the difficulties shutting it down. Hello, I'm Brian Polson here with Jenna Sachs. Hello. And Amanda St. Hilaire. Hi there. So your tax dollars pay for them. Your children might take them to school, but how much do we really know about the safety of Wisconsin school buses? Amanda and our executive producer, Leanne, went through nearly 8,000 pages of school bus inspections in southeast Wisconsin and found brake problems, steering issues, tire violations, and more. This started a series of investigative reports digging into why those problems persist, what happens when they don't get fixed, and whether the current system is effectively weeding out unsafe school buses. If I'm handing my child over to somebody else and a big bus, I want to make sure that he is safe and as well as everybody else. I can't think of uh, anything more important than protecting the children that are riding these buses. So this is a story that did not start with a call or a news tip. We were just curious. I, I think Leanne to this day still regrets us going, oh, I wonder what's there because it resulted in going through thousands of pages of records. Um, but we wanted to know what was in them. And really, it all boils down to three main points. So three out of every 10 school buses in southeast Wisconsin had defects in 2017, one out of every 10 taken off the road for safety violations. And we found one bus company in particular, Lakeside, uh, had the bulk of the safety issues. The second issue is that there were inconsistencies in state patrol's inspection reports. For example, school buses that were marked as approved for service to pick up children despite the fact that there were recorded defects that were supposed to take those buses off the road. And then the current system doesn't exactly make it painful for bus companies that get in trouble for safety violations. So the citations go to traffic court. They're a few hundred dollars each. And that really is just pennies compared to the millions of dollars in contracts a lot of these companies have with school districts. And buses have been caught operating when they're supposed to be off the roads. So you two are the parents in the room. I'm curious about what your reaction was to all of this. I know your kids don't necessarily take the bus, but as taxpayers, as, as people who have children and are thinking through that lens, you know, I want to well, hear your perspective. The first thing I really have to say is that stepping back even out of, outside the parent mode as a reporter, 
you hear these stats you're quoting, and it seems like you just kind of came up with them. Maybe you spent a few hours. You guys were <laughs> like slaving over computer keyboards and paperwork for months. Mm-hmm. They, Three months. It, it was, there, were, there was a time where I thought, is Amanda going to do anything else but look at school bus? <laughs> but it took Sometimes that I long. still wonder that. And, and actually what, what strikes me about that is to get, first of all, just to even get to the data that you have there, the numbers you talk about, that's not stuff that anyone could easily get to. Like, they're doing these inspections, but without you doing all of that work, we would never know. Yeah, so it really is the the bird's eye view, because even if you're the inspector, you're doing these things one at a, at a time. You're likely not looking at, oh, how many did I do this month, and how many had safety violations, and what bus companies were there. Um, and State Patrol, actually, I'll say, of all the... Eight, public agencies I've worked with so far, they've been the most responsive with public records. Uh, I had the records within the week, and that was, it was a lot of documents that they put together for us. But then it's going through it page by page, and that's why we ended up making a database so people could easily search it, because no parent has time to do all that. Right, and in response to your question earlier, um, how do we feel as parents? My kids are still too young to go to school, but when I put them on the school bus for the first time, it's going to be nerve-wracking, because you know they're small, you're trusting that the bus you put them on is going to be safe, and I think that was maybe what upset people the most when they saw your stories was it was a violation of the trust you have in your school and the school system to safely care for your child. Well, and my kids are a little older. I've got one in high school and one in middle school. And while they don't ride the bus to school, they go on field trips. There are occasions where they're getting on a bus and I'm not even there. I don't know what bus company's picking them up. I have this trust as a parent that the checks have been done. These buses are not only safe, that they're double checked, that they're absolutely guaranteed to be safe to get my kid from point A to point B. And when you start hearing that not only are they finding defects routinely, but some of these defects don't get corrected, that's alarming. It is. And to be clear, school buses, and and you'll hear this a lot in the stories that we do, they're considered the most safe vehicles, right? They are built to protect the kids inside them if there is a crash. But if something goes wrong, there are also a lot of lives on board that school bus, too. So that's why the safety standards are so strict. The The way the inspection process is supposed to work is that every bus gets inspected by state patrol inspectors at least once a year. Those are announced inspections. So theoretically, they should be perfect, right? The bus company knows when state patrol is coming. Um, that's often not the case. In addition to that, State Patrol does unannounced spot checks, and that's where they can catch issues if, hey, we pulled that bus out of service a few months ago um, because there were brake issues, and these brake issues haven't been fixed, but you've been running this bus for more than 2,000 more miles. There was a case of that recently in Racine, and... Before, State Patrol wasn't doing a whole lot of spot checks. There are only so many inspectors. There are thousands of buses in Wisconsin. Um, So we would find years where they would do six, maybe seven spot checks. In 2018, they really ramped it up. And so with those spot checks came a lot more discoveries of issues that were supposed to be fixed and and had not been fixed. And, and those seem to be the really outrageous ones, right? I mean, because you've got it's one we all have cars, and, and you go and you take it into the shop, and they go, "Oh, your maybe your brakes are they need to be repaired." There's some other thing that might qualify as a defect uh, um, if it were being tested for government purposes. 
But when they're told this thing's not working and don't put kids on this bus until you fix it, and you find out they're still doing it, I mean, that seems outrageous. It, it does. And that is, and inspectors that I've talked to, um, that's really what gets under their skin, especially because when school bus companies fix these issues, they do what's called a self-certification. So that's where they say to State Patrol, hey, we fix this. And State Patrol says, okay, they mark it in their records. This bus is fixed. It's good to go. So they're trusting them. They are. In some cases, a bus will require reinspection, and they'll note that. But again, to reinspect every school bus, that's it's a lot of resources they don't have. So the, it's the self-certification system. They trust them. And when you've self-certified, you've said this is fixed, and they check the bus again, and the brakes are still bad, and they see that you've run the bus for more than 2,600 additional miles, um, that's, a, that's a quick way to get an inspector upset. So that's when the bus company will get a citation. Um, but the citation, it's a traffic forfeiture citation. So you go to traffic court. Um, in these cases, it's a non-mandatory court appearance. So most bus companies don't show up. They don't send anyone. So they get a guilty by default, no contest plea. And they pay the citation, which is less than $400, and they go on their way. And in some cases, that payment might be cheaper than the fix of the actual problem. Well, and yeah. you said it's like a drop in the bucket in terms of what, this, what the bus companies are making from the districts to have these contracts? Right. So, for example, um, Durham School Services, that's one of the bus companies. They have, they're the only bus company that Racine Unified School District contracts with. And then they're one of the big bus companies that Milwaukee Public Schools contract with. Between the two of them, they get more than $13.5 million a year. So even when you added up all their citations, which was almost $15,000, that was nothing. So you have to look at how, how does this system work. And that's where we talked to State Senator Tim Carpenter, who saw our series of investigative reports, and he's on the Transportation Committee, and he said, hey, we need to take another look at this. So he's talking to the committee, um, going through talking to the new head of DOT, um, State Patrol's new leader, to see what can we do to improve this system. Because well, it seems like there's not much of a disincentive if the cost of these tickets is so small compared to maybe the cost of doing the proper repairs or the cost, or j- as you said, uh, Jenna, the, just that small percentage that it, it, it compares to their entire contract. If there's not much of a financial disincentive, maybe it's worth the risk. Or is that maybe is that the mental game that, that might be going on it, here? It might be. I mean, look, I don't think anyone is deliberately sabotaging these school buses. I don't think anyone is going to their job saying, hey, I want these kids to be unsafe. But as Senator Carpenter pointed out when we talked to him, when you have a, a penalty that is considered to not have teeth, and that's how state patrol inspectors have described it to me when we've talked off camera, then, you know, maybe, oh, we let this slip through the cracks, we let this go, we let that go. And all it takes is one time, one crash, one bad day, and then everyone's wondering, how did we not see this coming? Well, that's the thing. We've been fortunate that we haven't heard of something really bad happening on a school bus recently. But right. if, if it happens tomorrow, 
And in backtracking, somebody goes, oh, this was a bus that wasn't supposed to be on the road. The question we would all ask is, how did that happen? What you found here is this is the system that could allow something like that to happen. And you took it one step further because you wanted to help out our viewers as well who saw the story and said, is my school bus, my kid's school bus included on that list of of buses that maybe should be taken off the road? What did you do to kind of take it a step further? Because this was also very time consuming for you. Yeah. So we went through, I mean, we went through each inspection and we logged the information from it so we could go back and crunch the numbers. But as we were doing it, our executive producer, Leanne, and I were talking about how, again, no parent has time to do that. And if you do have that kind of time on your hands, you're not going to spend it going through school bus inspections. A lot of parents we talked to did not even know these were public records or that they had access to them. And so I asked her, do you think we can make a database? And right away she said yes. (laughs) And then I said, how are we going to do it? And she goes, I'll figure it out. Um, And... She did. So we took the we started with the year 2017 because we wanted a complete year. We wanted a recent year. Um, these stories, uh, the the database and everything launched at the end of 2018. And so if a bus was inspected in the southeast Wisconsin region, because state patrols divided into regions, um, then you can t- look it up by bus number. You can look up lists of buses by school district, although that's not always marked on the inspection report. There are different ways you can search. You did all this, though, off of paper, right? And these were all paper reports. Yeah. What strikes me is that this is – why isn't this information going into a database in the first place so they can do this analysis on the front end? I mean you can't keep recreating this work year after year if it creates months' worth of data entry, right? Right. Well, and so that's the interesting. Some states um, do have state-run school bus databases. So uh, Indiana, for example, has one that's very comprehensive. Some states don't even really make these records public. One of the reasons I was interested in this was because I came from Pennsylvania, where until recently, because of a loophole in the open records law, they didn't have to make bus inspection records public, so they did not. So So Wisconsin's doing well in making them public, but could do better in making this more accessible. They could. And look, you have to wonder, It's the responsibility is kind of divided, and that's what makes this a complicated issue. So State Patrol, they're the inspector, but, you know, their job is to point out the flaws, and it's the bus company's job to fix it. So where does State Patrol's responsibility end? Where does the bus company's responsibility begin? Where does the school district's responsibility come in? Because they may not own the buses, but they have the contracts and therefore, in a lot of cases, the the power over this. So these individual reports go to the school districts, but you know, how how closely are school districts analyzing all of these numbers that are coming in, or are you just seeing each piece of paper, okay, this one passed, this one did not, that doesn't give you that step back where you can say, hey, here's this company with this issue, we got to go talk to them. All right. Well, uh, I, there's there's so much we could talk about on this issue, because I know you've been talking about it for months and months now, and I, I appreciate that you put the time you did into this. We want to hear from you if you have information or questions or or want to know more about school buses or about anything else unrelated to school buses, we want your tips. You can call us at 586-2777. That's a 414 area code, 586-2777, or email theinvestigators at fox6now.com. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. 
we're taught to love thy neighbor, but how would you feel if your neighbor was hosting all-night parties every night of the week? A woman named, I almost said a woman named Jenna, a woman, <laughs> well, a woman named Jenna sitting right here. A woman emailed Jenna a while back to complain about what she called a disaster waiting to happen. That would be a lot of Jennas in one story. So this woman who emailed Jenna described seeing fights, prostitutes, drinking, drugs, not exactly stuff you want in your neighborhood. And it was all outside her neighbor's house. And sometimes it kept her awake until eight o'clock in the morning. When Jenna looked into this, she discovered the man was a notorious illegal party host operating in a new location. Her undercover investigation caught him in action. Our houses are very close together. So the music that you're playing, if you're really playing it at a high volume, you can hear it or feel it, okay? And you've got all these people coming and going. Um, the bars usually close between 2 and 2.30. That's when everything starts. Everybody starts congregating, coming, going, parking. Okay, so imagine living next door to someone who has parties starting in the middle of the night, 2, 3 a.m. after bars close every single night. You've got kids who need to go to school the next day. You have parents in the neighborhood who want to go to work, and they're awoken by noise and uh, crowds and sometimes even gunshots. It's a very stressful situation. Um, when we digged into it, police, we found, responded to 50 or so calls related to this property. In less than five months, neighbors reported fights, shots fired, loud music, illegal parking, and often the operation of an illegal tavern. Uh, the house had been declared a chronic nuisance by the city, and the owner we found was a 54-year-old man named Duran May, and he had been doing this thing for about eight years. At another house before this one, he was sued twice by the city for nuisance behavior, and there was even a double homicide that happened at that property, so it's a dangerous situation. Uh, the city shut down that house. May served 60 days in jail for violating some orders he had, um, but it was more complicated, we learned, to evict him from his current property because this time he was the renter and he was not the owner of the property. Um, so you can understand pretty quickly why this was a very stressful situation for these neighbors and why they were reaching out to us for well, help. And you imagine, you set the scene, you say, imagine it's your neighbor. This isn't like on some major corridor where there's commercial businesses and mm -hmm. you sort of expect a lot of noise. This was a just a residential neighborhood, right? It was on a somewhat busy street, but yes, there were houses up and down the street. There was a gas station on the corner. It's not the nicest neighborhood in Milwaukee, uh, but the neighbors who live on that, that street still have the right to quiet mm -hmm. at night at the very minimum. So what what's the first thing you do when you get a call like this? Because sometimes people are calling complaining about their neighbors and there's, there's not a whole lot you can do and there's not a whole lot of evidence you can find, but you found a lot of documentation here. We did. The first thing I did was call uh, a source at the police department to find out if there were records of disturbances at this property. I didn't know if this woman was exaggerating the situation or not. And it became evident very clearly that this was an issue and that police were being called to this property constantly. It was a drain on police resources. Police were very familiar with the property. And we started requesting records of police calls. We got video um, from body cam of police going to the door, knocking on the door, trying to talk to the owner. We got video from squad cars. So there was a wealth of 
of information to work with. Well, and this is all happening overnight, which typically we're here during the day. Most people are maybe awake during the day. So you had to see this for yourself. We That's did. always hard. When, when somebody says, this stuff's going on all night, it's every night, come see for yourself. You have kids at home. You can't just go out in the middle of the night. So what did you do? Well, that's where I'm fortunate to have producer Pete. <laughs> uh, so I didn't actually go out there in the middle of the night. We have someone on staff who I approached and I said, hey, how do you feel about going to a not-so-safe neighborhood in Milwaukee and parking your car on the street around 2 or 3 in the morning and staying there. And just how did that conversation go? He was a great sport about it. He went out there um, a few nights, actually, and he watched this property. He got video of people parking their cars just when the woman said they would, around the time she said, and they were all walking toward the back of this dark property. So he got he got the crowds going in. We knew that what she was telling us was true. Now, having done a lot of surveillance over the years, I know producer Pete will agree with me on this as he sitting and looking at me right now, it's always more fun to do a story where there's actually action and things happening instead of sitting and watching nothing happen. It sounds like this is one where there was action all the time. Yeah. And to be honest, I was happy that he got action. I would have felt badly if I had him sit there in the middle of the street <laughs> overnight and nothing sometimes. happened. Yeah. Exactly. So it justified what she was telling us. Um, and then from there on, we, we started talking to the city attorney's office about what could be done uh, to try to evict him from this property. And it wasn't as easy as the last property because he is a tenant in this situation, and they're dealing with a landlord who has rights, and they're trying to um, give him a chance to rectify the situation. But the landlord, it turns out, does eventually have incentive to evict this tenant because he starts getting billed for police response to the property once it's declared a nuisance. Uh, so that's a $3,200 citation every time police are called. So we did track down the landlord, talk to him. He said he was trying to kick the guy out. Um, he'd given him a 28-day notice. That time passed. Uh, but eventually, at the end of our story, this man was evicted from the property. You had uh, obviously been working on this a while before that even came about, but I'm sure she was dealing with this long before you got involved. How much, you know, if, if the landlord could have kicked him out at any time and, and police, you know, could have started, you know, racking up these fines at any time, how much did your involvement, did the pressure of contact six being involved have to do with the ultimate resolution here? You know, I can't know for sure, but I know that we talked to the landlord and he wasn't thrilled that we were looking into it. Uh, we tried to talk to Duran May we at his property. Um, he was not thrilled to see us either. He ran back inside the house. He eventually got in his car and backed it up down the street and turned down an alley to avoid passing us. So I would think it may have had some role in speeding things up a bit, but you know, we, there's really no way to know for sure. Um, but the spotlight was definitely on him. Um, and then, you know, uh, six months or so later, we got another call that he was doing it again, and we had a, a second story. Yeah, so uh, he, he was out of one property, and he found another. But um, the process is faster once you're on the city's radar and you have a history of doing this kind of thing. Um, neighbors, I think, find it very frustrating because they feel like nothing's being done. They make these calls to the police department, they report the behavior, uh, and they talk to their aldermen and everything, and then they feel like nothing's happening. But people have property rights, and it's important that they do have those rights. So it's a it's a long process of getting someone's house shut down. So my understanding then is that even though he's a serial illegal partier, all of these violations, because he's renting, they're tied to the landlord's name and the landlord's property. So that means even though he's been doing this for years, 
there, it sounds like there's not much to stop him. He can keep moving. He can keep partying. People will complain. Maybe he'll move again. But is there anything that would take away the incentive for that behavior to continue? Well, I think this is how he makes a living. I mean, he's been doing it for so long. Uh, probably good money in it if you're charging for people to come into a house party. Exactly. The um, city attorney's office believes this is how he made the his money. Is operating. probably a lot cheaper. Right. Operating an illegal tavern. And when we're cutting off his resources every time, and when I say we, I mean the city, um, when they're shutting him down quickly, he's not making his money. It's probably a lot of hassle to go from house to house. Um, but the first time he owned the property, and that was a long process of getting him getting him shut down. Police were sitting outside that property filming people going in and out it for a while. It would be miserable to have that next door, never being able to sleep, also worried about who are the people coming and going, um, you know, is it bringing crime to the neighborhood? But on top of that, I would think that there's got to be some safety issues at some of these parties when you don't have, I mean, there's a reason that there are permit process and there are certain things that a tavern, for instance, has to do to keep their license. If there are problems with fights and other things, you go to the city and you say, revoke their license right. because there's problems. Here, there's no license to revoke. Exactly. So and neighbors be- were telling us about bullets hitting their cars and their homes. Uh, there was a situation where he wasn't letting people use his bathroom, so people were urinating on their neighbor's lawns. I, I mean, it's a, it's a nightmare situation, and I'm really happy that this family isn't dealing with it anymore. I am this curious- is the oh. third story in two weeks where we've talked about urinating on someone. It's, it's a theme. I think it's a common we've theme. Got a, we've got a quite a few. This comes up quite a bit. Second or third But I will story. say, you know, if this does happen to you, understand the process is going to be slow. Call the police non-emergency number. Call your alderman. Um, just keep track of everything you're seeing and just be a good resource for the city um, because they're going to want that information eventually from you. And, and what do you do if Contact Six is trying to shut down the coolest party you go to on Saturday <laughs> night? No, I'm, I'm no but I, I'm sure for, uh, that was obviously a, a joke. But for the people who are going to these parties, I'm sure they probably did. You get any feedback from people who are like, "Hey, you're killing our party." You know, it was interesting because we posted all of our stories on Facebook. We always post our stories on Facebook, and the comment section from our viewers, a lot of people were saying, "Oh, they finally got Triple D," which was his nickname. He, he's been doing this for years. I used to go to his parties; they were always great. And people were kind of laughing, and he seemed well-known just in our comment section. People were sharing it with people. So a, a lot of people were saying just they knew a, exactly say, about this. You, so it you have young kids side. now. You've gotten your practice in shutting down a party. So when they're teenagers, <laughs> you have the experience that you need. Now that's a connection, and I'll leave right there. But no, that's not – I mean, it, as popular as he may have been among the people going to the parties, I'm sure that's just not the house you want to have next door. No, and I mean, it's unsafe. I mean, they're just Describing prostitution, gun um, gunfights—it's it's a dangerous situation and a hazard to a residential community. Absolutely. Contact Six, of course, uh, is always ready to help if you have a concern about a business or a bad neighbor. Uh, if you've got a complaint, you can call us at 414-586-2666 or fill out a form on our website, fox6now.com. If you have a complaint, or if you want Jenna to shut down a party, yeah, no kidding. I'm so popular. <laughs> Party Patrol Jenna is Sachs, here. Official buzzkill. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the sound of the dinner bell means it's time for dinner party questions. This is a weekly segment where we answer questions we most often get asked at parties or events. I'm glad it says or events because we pretend like we're at a lot of parties these days. <laughs> but yeah, questions we get asked about 
what we do. All right, but there's a catch. We have no idea what the question is going to be. There are several envelopes in front of us, and we are going to pick one at random. Amanda, do you want to do it All this right, time? you did it last time. Let's see. Can we get a fancy letter opener for this segment? Not if we get a dinner bell, too. One or the other. <laughs> All right. Can't get this budget out of control. <laughs> Do you ever worry about your safety? You know, I was giving some high school students a tour of the station a couple months ago, and they asked me that, and I answered it honestly, which is sometimes, yeah, a little bit. I mean, there have been situations where um, we've been at crime scenes and emotions are running high, and sometimes people are directing some of their anger in our direction. Um, and we understand that there's a lot of emotion in the places we're going, and some of the neighborhoods we're going to aren't the safest. Um, but I do take comfort in the fact that I have a camera with me, and I feel like that offers me some protection because I'm documenting everything. And you, it wouldn't be the smartest to harm a person with a camera. Um, but, I mean, we're knocking on doors. We don't know what's on the other side of them. Um, so I'd have to say... Yeah, I mean, it's a concern, but I do feel like our station is very good about saying, if you feel unsafe, you leave. We are totally okay with you saying, I can't do this live shot here. Um, I don't feel comfortable working in this neighborhood. So I'm happy to work at a station where they take safety concerns seriously, and they're never going to get mad at us for missing out on a scoop if it made us feel unsafe. So yes, but I'm glad we can get out of it if we need to. Well, you guys already know my answer. To, we talk, talked about last week, uh, or la, you know, a lot about the the guy coming out with a gun, and that was kind of the one. And if you didn't listen to that episode, this was I was confronting a guy on his front lawn out in Jefferson County. He wasn't happy I was there. He goes inside. He comes back out with a gun in his hand, and he's yelling at me and threatening me, or at least I perceived it that way. I guess he would say he wasn't threatening me, but he wanted me to get out of there, and the gun was supposed to get me to go quickly. Unfortunately, as you also know, I didn't go quickly, and and that is uh, that was sort of a watershed moment for me because I've done this so long. I've always had that same feeling you had. There's a camera with me. It's almost a sense, maybe uh, an overconfidence, that no one's going to harm me because we're recording this. And, and so I've been very aggressive in going after people who I felt needed to have whatever they were doing, you know, the spotlight put on them, and this is that opportunity. And so, so I've been maybe a little too confident at times. That was the moment where I stepped back and people in my life said, hey, you know, there's a real potential you could get hurt here, and I need you around. And uh, so you, you got to watch that. Maybe it also drove it home when the deputy said that was ridiculous and you shouldn't have done that. Um, that will drive that home. But going back, one, one quick story going way back is when I was, uh, gosh, this was years ago, I'd done a series of stories, um, eventually did a series of stories on a guy named Dan Burzak, who, uh, career criminal. At the time we did the first story on him, he'd already been arrested more than 40 times. He had multiple uh, criminal convictions. He'd been in and out of jail and had once been called by a judge. Oh, no, he told a judge once, I've been a total menace to society. So we started calling him the moving menace because he was part of a moving company or he had this home moving company. We went to go visit him on his front porch. And I remember the photographer who came with me, Miles Cooksey, great photographer, great guy. Miles uh, did a lot of feature type work and he hadn't been on a confrontation before, but he came with me and we're on Dan Burzak's front porch in Muskego. And it starts out nicely enough. He realizes my questions are very direct and he gets more and more aggressive. And at a certain point, he gets very aggressive and he has gone back inside his house, but is looking through a screen door. And he immediately 
jumps out the screen door, pushes it open and yells in my face, get off my property. And he's spitting and he's angry. And we get off the property and stand there for a minute. He comes back out and he says, you ever get in my face again? I'm going to bust you in the mouth. And I'm thinking this whole time, this is awesome. (laughs) I loved it because I knew we had great material for the story. We got back in the car and the adrenaline's flowing. And the photographer, Miles, looks at me and he says, this is, I'll never forget these words out of his mouth. He said, you are a different cat, man. <laughs> <laughs> he was he was freaking out. He did not like that yeah. at all. So it's one of those things that I, I've, I've, uh, I've done a number of these things over the years that I suppose could have been uh, dangerous and just always had this overconfidence. Now I'm starting to get that maybe there's a real danger sometimes in what we do. Yeah, and going off what you said, I think sometimes we tend to minimize it because we just kind of accept it's part of the job or we're used to it, or we've we've been in those situations before, um, and especially because we're all pretty assertive types. You never want to be the problem. You never want to be the complainer. But I think um, the the safety issue now isn't just in the moment when you're there with the camera, with social media, um, and the stalking issues that can happen, especially with women in this industry. I mean, we all exchange stories about creepers and things like that and we laugh it off and we get weird letters but sometimes you need to take a step back and go okay am i taking this as seriously as i need to one place i worked um there was a a guy who was he was just incessantly calling the station um he was sending some very um disturbing emails that were sexual in nature, and he directed it at two of us, two of us reporters. And there wasn't really anything we could do. There was a mental health issue there. Um, police could get involved, but we were working shifts, overnight weekend shifts, where we were the only two people in the building. And there's not a lot to get around that. I, I want to echo Jenna's thoughts, which is I feel really grateful to work somewhere that takes that seriously. We have a lot of station-wide discussions about security and safety and things to look out for and things that we as individuals might kind of brush off and say, oh, we've dealt with this before. I feel like our managers take it more seriously than we do. And that doesn't happen in necessarily every workplace. So I think that's something to reflect on. But because we're used to it, we almost get... We can get desensitized to it. It's interesting you brought up the social media aspect because it does give people a sense that they're getting more direct contact, which is good in terms of connecting with viewers, but it can give people a false sense that they're closer to maybe a a reporter than they they really really are or should be. Yeah, well, and then it's hard to – I don't know. It's hard to make sure your gauge is calibrated correctly. So someone might do something – that makes me feel uncomfortable and they're not necessarily being threatening or maybe they don't intend to be. But in the time that I'm sitting there trying to work through that person's intentions and make sure they're comfortable, something bad could be happening to me. And so that's where I hope that people out there that we're interacting with, whether it's online or in person, understands that, okay, you may have harmless intentions when you're making you know, kind of questionable comments or when you're getting in my face or any, you know, something like that. But um, 
someone else, we have to keep in mind that you may not. We don't know your intentions. And that's where sometimes I feel bad about being a little rude or a little standoffish, but I feel like I'm more aware of it, honestly, now that I'm pregnant and I'm not just that when it's my own safety, I'm kind of like, ah, whatever. But now it's like, oh, there's, <laughs> there's like life that I need to protect. Right. Um, and that's when I started thinking about this stuff a lot more. And this is a little lighter, but sometimes the most nerve wracking places I've ever gone live is the middle of Summerfest, an outdoor <laughs> yep. music concert where people are drinking heavily or Miller Park after like a big game. Um, so we've actually done fake live shots before so that people who wanted to come up and try to touch or get into the shot or be distracting, came in and did that, and then they thought it was over, and then we would actually do the real live shot about 10 minutes later. Just ask CBS 2's Jeremy Ross, former Fox Sixer, who still talks about the time he was kissed at Summerfest Live. Well, Ashley Sears recently had an issue like that. I think it was at New Year's Eve. Someone, Someone kissed her on the cheek during yeah, the live shot. And, it's like, like and, it. and that's where you say some people may think that's harmless and fun. That's not to no. a reporter because you don't know I where that's coming from you. and where that's you're, going. You're coming out of nowhere. You're approaching me. I don't I don't know if you have a weapon. I don't know if you're trying to hurt me. That's, you know, and, of course, all, all our coworkers, they handle it like pros because you're on TV and you're trying to stay composed and give people information. But it is um, it is something that I think is a lot more alarming than people give it credit for. Thanks for listening to us here at Open Record. We'd like to quickly thank the people helping us make this happen. Producer Pete, our editor Dave Machuda, and executive producer Leanne Watson. And if you want more Open Record, head to our website, fox6now.com. Tribune Audio Network.